Altitude's undefeated. Crap, we will punch it up, whatever it was in. Not a huge fan of me, but... I don't know where I was going. I looked like I was running and started to talk to someone. I don't know what I was doing. I tell you what, Matt, we don't get much by you, that's for sure. Hello, Rapids fans. You're listening to Holding the High Line with Rabbi and Red. It is Wednesday, March 15th, 2023. My name is Matt Pollard. No fancy long bantery intro um, for this week. I'm not particularly in the mood. If you've been on Rapids Twitter over the weekend, you know why. If you don't, you'll find out in a couple minutes. Um, I'm joined now by my good friend, Mark Goodman. Rabbi, how you doing? I'm good. I don't, uh, I'm immune to all the media unpleasantness that we'll get to eventually later, um, because I don't live in the Colorado metropolitan Denver corporate area. So I, I, I kind of take what I get from the Rapids and, and, you know, the interesting thing coming up is I plan, I have like plans to go to two Rapids games and at least one of them I'm going to take my kid to. And so short of, uh, you know, putting them, uh, on stilts and giving them a a camera bag and saying like, no, no, this is my photographer. Um, I'll just be buying tickets and sitting in the stands and and having a good old time. So um, it'll be interesting because I probably won't won't be kind of sitting in for the regular media relationshipy thingy. Other than that, I've been busy, crazy at work and everything's going really well. Um, There's a uh, 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 a breed Mila tomorrow. That's what what uh, most people know of as a bris that I got to work, and then a week from that, from today, I got another bris. So it's it's bris season for the Jewish people, which means there's lots of you know nice uh, uh, smoked fish spreads at synagogue every day, which I'm a big fan of. I I don't know that I got into this job because I like Judaism, or I think I more got into it for the smoked fish for free. Rabbi, it was. A uh, high of 70 degrees in Denver today. That's the first time that's happened since I believe. I can't remember whether it was a date in October or November of last year. Chris Bianchi had the details on it on Twitter, folks. Rabbi, has fake spring number one arrived in Pittsburgh? Uh, it did. Yesterday it snowed and we woke up to um, it, like it snowed all day yesterday. And today uh, the high was like 50 and it was just absolutely lovely. So but that being said, um, it's going to hit like 56 on Thursday, and then on Friday, it's going to rain all day. So, you know, we take what we get. Speaking of taking what we can get, Mark, uh, we look at CCL, which is happening, obviously. We're into the second legs right now. Last night, uh, Austin FC narrowly lost out to Violetta. Mark, if if ESPN ever did CCL 30 for 30s, like... Violetta's insanity and what they've had to deal with from a logistical and like a and a procedural standpoint should absolutely be in there. Philly smashed Alianza. That's not super surprising. Atlas advanced on a on a wide margin as well. Vancouver hang uh, held on to Real España. Both of their legs mark had five goals. The difference was one was five zero and the other one was three two. So uh, the Caps advanced seven to three on aggregate. And then at time of recording, uh, LAFC has just kicked off with Alajuela. They should advance. They're up 3-0 on aggregate, and Orlando lost out on away goals 1-1. 
Alajuelense has an early goal, though, and we're only nine minutes in. So I'm not saying that they're going to pull the upset, but eh, it just puts some fear into the hearts of the folks of Exposition Park. All right. And then um, and then tomorrow night at time of recording uh, today, if you're listening to us on Thursday, folks, Leon and Pachuca probably likely to advance in their home legs as well. Uh, Mark, what have we made of CCL so far? And obviously the only game that we've watched so far in this week was Austin, and I thought Austin tried really hard, but credit to Violetta. I think they deserved over the, the 180 to advance. Yeah, Matt and I were talking before we turned on the record button. Um, the Austin game was really enjoyable. Um, it's It was a fun game because as a MLS truther, Homer, we all kind of root for the MLS teams. But if you can't get your MLS team to win, then you root for the smaller side. You root for the Caribbean teams, you root for the Central American teams. And Violetta have a really compelling story, both as a Haitian team to be, I think, the first Caribbean team to advance since like 2007 or something like that. But also because um, apparently they haven't taken to the field in over 270 days because the Haitian League is shut down because um, Port-au-Prince, the capital of Haiti, has been in a great degree of gang violence and chaos. Um, So this is kind of one of those feel-good stories that hopefully will you know, kind of carry forward that Violetta has, has pulled up the pulled off the big upset. Also, it was a wild game, Matt. I mean, because they needed to make up a um a three goal deficit, Austin was bombing in each direction, you know, and then when uh Violetta would 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 turn over the ball, they'd go on the counterattack with like a four V three. And it was like so much fun. There was like a stretch in the end of the first half where both teams ran end to end full speed like five times in a row. And it was the kind of thing where, you know, I think a lot of soccer fans or a lot of people who don't watch a lot of soccer hope that it always looks like that. But because you can't sprint nonstop for 90 minutes it doesn't look like that but for a little stretch of time it looked like you know kind of your platonic ideal of a messy chaotic fun high energy high octane soccer match which we all gotta love yeah and then so if we look at the bracket right now mark um orlando city was the only team on their side of the bracket ccl bracketology a different type of march madness listeners uh was nice. uh was the only mls team on that side so most likely mark you've got Leon versus Violetta, and then in the other quarterfinal, you've probably got Tigres versus Pachuca. So three Liga Mekis teams, and the one non MLS team that's probably the one non MLS non Mexican team that's getting out of the round of sixteen. Take your pick between which one of those three um, Mexican teams I think makes the final. I'll take Pachuca just off the top of my head, and then it'll likely be Vancouver versus LAFC, and then we've already gotten it confirmed. It will be Atlas versus. Philadelphia Union. I still like it to be LAFC versus Philly in that semifinal. I'm still fairly confident it will be an MLS team versus a Liga MX opponent in the final once again. I do not believe that MLS team will win the championship ultimately. Mark, any, anything else? Uh, what are your picks and anything else you want to say before we close out this uh, CCL banter? I really, I mean, last week I was talking about how I like Pachuca um, and that Leon right now on the table haven't been doing particularly well, but um, I don't think you can ever sleep on Tigres. This is, uh, you know, uh, this is, I think, a little bit of a weak year for the Mexican teams. And I don't think any of these American teams is as strong as Seattle was last year. So if there was ever a year in which a Central American 
or a Caribbean team could win it, this would be a good year. I just don't think any of these teams is going to be the one. So um, it's unfortunate that that the the strongest of the Central American teams like Alajuelense, who are traditionally very strong, um, and uh, Olympia, who are traditionally very strong, didn't make it. <laughs> but possibly a, a team from one of the weaker countries, Violeta, did make it. Um, so that'll be interesting to see in the next round. Uh, I would say that my favorite uh, is Philadelphia. I really do think that Philly, if they could get by Atlas, have a very good chance of winning the whole thing. That's the funny thing, though, is that I do think that like Atlas is eh, now, right now, maybe my my favorite to do it. But unfortunately, that means that in a in a in a what is it a uh, uh, the round of eight, um, we've got a matchup that would have made for a good final matchup. That's my thoughts. Uh, listeners this past Saturday at, is it PayPal Park still, Mark? I think it is. Uh, no, no, I, it's not Avaya, it's not a, right? It's not Avaya, and it's not San Jose Earthquake Stadium, and it's definitely not Buckshot. <laughs> In any case, the Colorado Rapids went on road to San Jose Earthquakes and lost by a score of 1-0. to nil. Disappointingly, we did see a bit of an interesting lineup change, Mark. Um, we had... Gershback back in for Steven Betasher, and then Danny Wilson made his first start of the 2023 campaign, and I would argue, Mark, it was a back five, at times a back three, in possession with Makshu, Lalas Abubakar, and Danny Wilson, and then Kevin Cabral made his first start of the season for the first team playing up top with Darren Yappi. Mark, it wasn't great. Um, San Jose had some good open looks that they were very poor in finishing, and I think on paper looked good. When you look at the actual plays, I don't think they were ready for them, and the Rapids' defense held with that and I think absorbed that. They tried to do some stuff in transition. Kevin Cabral was okay. He was better than what I think what we've seen from Michael Barrios, so I was totally fine with that. Christian Espinoza hit the crossbar on a shot in late in the first half from long distance. William Yarbrough did get a touch to that, but, you know, you, you had that uh, chance for Shu on the set piece, and then, you know, Yappi in transition as well after Lal Sububakar was subbed out and Sam Nicholson came in for him and created that transition moment. Um, and then after that, it was kind of a, it was a small game of counterattacks, and I thought San Jose was better in the wings, and I thought the Rapids were worse in terms of what they did in possession. Thought it was slow, methodical, a little bit predictable, easy for San Jose to deal with. Didn't make them uncomfortable, and fundamentally, the Rapids turned the ball over in bad areas that ultimately led to chances, including ultimately the goal, which I think if that ball that Espinoza hits from just outside the box doesn't take a touch, I think Yarbrough gets a touch on it, and we're talking about a a feel-good result with albeit you know a still slightly concerning performance rabbi your thoughts yeah i wrote a really epic back pass this week where i really pulled things apart i won't reiterate that but i'll rec- recommend that you go if you really want to take apart and understand what's going on with this rapids offense um, one of the interesting things is i didn't spend a whole lot, lot of time thinking about the defense which uh, matt doyle did a really nice job in his column which he wrote every week about how the Rapids were really trying to bunker down on the road, and, and they did a pretty good job of doing that, and I agree with that. 
Um, it's just that the offense looked really stiff. Uh, they did not make um, a lot of unique movement. One of the things that the Rapids have been pretty good at is creating little triangles down the sides. Um, they did it a little bit versus SKC. They did it a bunch last year. It's one of the things that Cole Bassett was always really good at. Um, we haven't seen a lot of that in this game, uh, in, in these last couple games. The one thing I did like about the offense up the middle is that um, Connor Ronan often got the ball progressed to him straight from Danny Wilson, um, and then he kind of tried to find Cole Bassett. And the reason that I like that is that um, typically the Rapids have been either going down the sides or they've been going to the left side and then hitting the big switch to Michael Barrios on the right diagonal. That's like a favorite play that the Rapids do, you know, let Barrios, you know, play uh, vertical offense, um, you know, pick him out like you're uh, a quarterback running a 70-yard um, Hail Mary pattern and then see if he can latch onto the ball, which he's got a tremendous ability to receive. Um, he wasn't in this game, so that wasn't really – or he didn't start this game, so that wasn't as much of a factor. I will say that the thing that made this offense as um, rigor mortisy and stiff as possible was the fact that the Rapids broke out on transition a grand total of zero times, Right. They never turned over the ball. Matt says there was uh, one. No, I'm, I'm question mark. How are you? How are you defining broke out in transition? So, whenever the Rapids received uh, turned the ball over, um, there were a couple times where they tried to play it forward quickly, but they didn't retain possession. There were no, you know, rapid fire three on four, three on three dribbles against the opposition where they got into the final third. Um, I counted basically having rewatched the game, zero moments where they really broke out. They generally tried to progress the ball kind of methodically and slowly as opposed to, you know, breaking out and bombing. So, and I think that's a problem. Um, I don't think that the, and I think that's a problem going all the way back to last season where the Rapids do not move the ball forward quickly and aggressively um, and on the rare occasions when they do, they don't do it very well. And so they turn over the ball really quickly. So like, that's the problem is like, it's, you, you can only count uh, a rapid fire counterattack if you don't turn over the ball in the first pass or second pass. Right. Um, because otherwise it just looks like a clearance realistically. So there were a lot of plays where the rapids, I could not tell whether the rapids were trying to play a fast ball in in a counterattack or whether they were just clearing it because they just loped it upfield so inaccurately. Um, so, but you know, like that's, that's just one thing that if you're going for low risk, low reward um, in order to defend, you're going to do, but I, I don't think ultimately it worked. The last thing I'll say is something else I noted in, in back pass, which was they went with five at the back, right? They went with Danny Wilson. I like having Danny Wilson in the middle um, defensively with Abubakar on one side and um, Max, Shu. Max Shu on the other because it meant that Abubakar and Max Shu could defend and and Danny Wilson could do the distribution out of the back and do the defending also. Um, the problem with it was you're taking a guy off of what would have otherwise been the front line and you're putting him in the back line. And so you just have one fewer attacker and the Rapids just attacked with fewer guys. And like that works if you grind out a nil-nil draw on the road, but they didn't. They took home zero points, and so you can objectively say that it didn't work. Now, I'm not opposed to them doing it in the future, um, but they've got to be more ruthless 
in defense. They allowed too many shots. They didn't take enough. They took six shots. Two of them were barely shots. Um, and the last thing I'll say, since I've gone on and on, is, um, you know, Kevin Cabral did not have a great game. This was his first start. Um, he wasn't particularly effective. I'll give him a few more chances, but, you know, we've been kind of crowing for the last couple of weeks, like, oh, we should start Cabral. That'll fix everything. Or, you know, let's let's put him on. Let's see what he does. And this was not a great uh, proof of concept, shall we say, in that, like, Kevin Cabral is is the solution. I think right now what we're looking at is a Rapids team where we're kind of like, eh, you know, I don't really know what the solution is. And the solution, we think, is probably um, Diego Rubio. But the idea that one guy's going to come in and clean up the mess of this team, I don't know that that's really, you know, going to play out. Yeah, to that point, Mark, about the new signings and everything, I'm 100% sold on Connor Ronan. I I feel very good oh, yeah. saying three games into his tenure at the club, playing, again, slightly out of position and in a way where he can still be effective, but not where I think his biggest strengths are, is him being further up the pitch and linking up with Cole and really being that pivot between the other two guys in the midfield and everything. I'm sold on him. I'm sold that Max Xu is a good signing. I'd like to see a little bit more, maybe force multiplication in terms of him affecting the other defenders in the defense as a whole positively before I'm convinced that he's worth of a DP center back. He, you know, he's been with the team, what, uh, he, he joined the team in Orlando. So whatever that time in Orlando to now, like January. Um, I think it was, I think it was technically in February. I'd have to go back and check. Oh, wow. In any case, he's still acclimating the team, I think, a little bit more. He's obviously acclimating to America, um, as he admitted in his, our first group media availability after the home opener against Sporting Kansas City. His English is not that great as well. So you compare that to Connor Ronan, Mark, who's coming in, speaks the language, obviously, or at the very least, they, you know, he and Pricey can understand each other's accents easily enough with there. And so you've got... Um, you know, you've potentially got Maxu, who's mostly played with Lal Sububakar, both secondary English speakers. On top of that, you've got potentially Marco Illich, who I saw in training for the first time on Tuesday, Mark. Um, you know, if he potentially unseeds William Yarbrough, then you're talking about two center backs, potentially either two center backs out of two or two out of three that are non-native English speakers. And then as well, you know, another secondary English speaker as well. And you combined with getting acclimated to altitude, which he was a little bit less adept to. Whereas you compare to um, Ronan has played, uh, played a year in the Swiss second division. So he's familiar with altitude. And then Gershbach, obviously, um, you know, at, um, Grenoble, Grenoble was, you know, right on the foothills of the of the French Alps as well. So they have some familiarity with what that does to the body. A little bit new to uh, a little bit new to Maxu, who's you know playing in the Nether, uh, not the Netherlands, in Scandinavia, that is you know closer to sea level in that regard. But Denmark, yeah, Little Mermaid sold on Connor Ronan, mostly positive and increasingly positive about Andreas Maxu, Mark. Alex Gershbach, um, you know, you made a really good point in back pass about in this game, and maybe this was situational, of playing him in the Vines back Lucas Estevez role, and I, I thought he was okay. That's the first time that he's played in a back five for the Rapids. Obviously, it's only the second game that he's played with the team as well. I want to give more time. There's a lot of other moving yeah. pieces around him as well. But to your point, Rabbi, last season 
when the Rapids did not have Diego Ruby on the field. Their really only effective and consistent way of moving through the lines and in transition was Lucas Estevez overlapping and somebody pinging a really good ball. And I would have thought back five, putting Gersh back in a position to be successful and receiving those passes from Danny Wilson, that would have been more plug and play. Maybe there was something more going on. Uh, Obviously, as I wrote in my piece for Burgundy Wave, the Wingbacks were more isolated in ways that I think they wouldn't have been had you had Price in there and then Ronan and Bassett being a little bit more mobile rather than Ronan and and Brian Acosta um, being in the double pivot. But that was a slight concern. That was a minor quip that I have about a player that I still think needs more time to embed in Mark. And that is a minor quip amongst many other things that I thought were far more problematic about this game that we already mentioned. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I was thinking about it in my criticisms of Gersbach, uh and in general of like Robin Frazier. Um, a, a question that I have is, all right, if over the last couple of years, the team has overwhelmingly preferred to start the attack with the left back position or the left wing back position. And this year, we don't really have the guy to, to make that happen. I mean, that one of the things that made the Rapids successful is if your philosophy of the beginning of the attack starts at left back and your left back is Sam Vines, you're in a pretty good spot, right? You're, you're set up to succeed because you're starting off with a very strong player. If you don't have a strong player at left back and you run everything through the left back, it's like, I don't know, it's like if you were the Los Angeles Raiders in the Bo Jackson era in the Tecmo Bowl video game style of Bo Jackson, and then Bo Jackson you know, retires from from sports and you're still running plays like Bo Jackson is your running back. And that doesn't work, right? So, boy, that is an old reference for middle-aged men. I hope you all enjoyed that. And also that is the rabbi um, using the very minimal amount of throwball uh, knowledge that he has. Um, but the, the question is, does Frazier reformulate the offensive attack around a different pivot point, right? Or does he continue trying to get what he can out of the left back position and either let Gersbach grow into it or turn it over to Steven Betashore, who who might be better at it. I don't know. Or switch it over to Brian Galvan. I don't know. Um, I would be I would prefer they kind of mix things up. Um, You know, there's a way in which, you know, Connor Ronan um, dropping deep to receive the ball from Danny Wilson and then Danny Wilson kind of following him up in the attack or Lalas Abubakar following him in the attack and trying to be either more central or let the center back range and be more wide or con- or giving Connor Ronan the ability to be to 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 roam more might be a way of accomplishing the same thing and then you're doing the opposite of what kind of like what they call the modern fullback does, right? The way modern fullbacks typically work is they're way up at the field and then they come way back. Maybe you, you know, do an old school, early 1990s English Premier League version of the fullback, which is mostly they stay back, right? Mostly they're fullbacks. They stay, they don't, they don't run the, the channels too much. They're mostly just kind of hanging back to defend at the wide spots and that's it. And maybe you're trying to use other players out of the middle to do that. The challenge is every team in major league soccer clogs the middle they're all and and in most leagues you know the deny the middle deny zone 14 that's usually the primary way of attacking it that's why left backs and right backs are so important in soccer because 
they give him a free hand. So I don't have a great answer to it. My my suggestion to Robin Frazier, who I'm certain listens to this podcast that takes detailed notes on the brilliant things that you and I have to say, Matt, I would suggest that he de-emphasize um, Gersbach as the pivot point to start the attack in the future. Yeah, and maybe maybe Jack Price getting back and Diego Rubio getting back mm. is super helpful, Markham. I guess we can talk about this now. As I mentioned, I was at training uh, on Tuesday this week. Uh, John Babiak, our photographer, Mark, um, for both. Um, you use his photos as well still, so I think we can say um, officially on – He's ours. Officially on paper, Burgundy Waves photographer, but effectively uh, photographer also for um, the HDHL Substack was there on Wednesday as well. And the only players, Mark, we have not seen participating in team training through those two games are Moise Bombito, who's still recovering from that minor MCL knock that was not serious and didn't require surgery, and then Yaya Torre, who obviously is doing his rehab separately. I did not see Brian Galvan doing team activities when I was there on Tuesday. He was doing some separate cardio work. He was out there today at time of recording on Wednesday as well, and I should be pointed out, Mark, Diego Rubio, both days, Jack Price, both days, Lalas Bubakar, who got subbed out in the first half in San Jose. Robin Frazier called that a hamstring injury and described it as not too serious, but TBD. He was also participating as well. Mark, at the end of that game, maybe we thought, you know, um, uh, that it was a maybe maybe we were expecting that the Rapids were almost injury bug FC. But if you're telling me Diego Rubio, two straight days in training, maybe he's able to make the bench. And I spoke to Jack after Tuesday as well, and he said the back was all good and everything. And he's hoping that, you know, that he's in a good position. I, I'm increasingly I, I would not be shocked, Rabbi, if it was price starting and getting subbed off and Rubio was available to give 20 minutes as well. And Jonathan Lewis as well, fully participating as well. He made his return to the lineup off the bench along with price on Saturday. So Saturday, we might've been feeling really concerned about injury bug United. Um, I think this might be, this is the healthiest the Rapids have been all season this particular week. And hopefully that only continues and hopefully the lineup and the bench on Saturday reflects that newfound health and bodies coming back. And if it's, if it's, Price and Rubio, Mark, I'm increasingly feeling much more better about the direction this team can go in. Okay, Rabbi, do we do we want to talk about it? Let's talk about okay. it. Okay. Um, I I guess I'll go first, Rabbi, since since I'm involved in everything. Um, so oh, you're very involved, Matthew. I, yes, as, as the managing editor of Burgundy Wave, I accept full responsibility <laughs> for what has transpired. So on uh, there's an article. Um that will be up on Burgundy Wave at the time that you are listening to this, folks. Um, it'll probably be published Thursday morning, Thursday early afternoon at the absolute latest. Rabbi did not send you an advanced copy of this, um, so I'll, I'll just walk through it as well. Um, so Joseph Samuelson, um, our mutual friend on the podcast and uh, writer for Burgundy Wave, attended the Rapids 2 game up in Windsor, the preseason match that was happening prior to the game in San Jose against Northern Colorado Hailstorm. Um, during those two games, during the second half, he sent out two tweets, that um, one of which involved a um, Rapids coaching assistant using profanity, and then a second which involved a dust-up between two Rapids players and one Hailstorm player that involved one of the Rapids players using profanity as well. Um, a rap- No member of the Rapids communication team 
rabbi was able to be present for that game. Obviously, the team was sure. on the road in San Jose, and the one member who could have been there physically in Windsor was feeling under the weather. In general, in that regard, due to the first team having a game as well, um, there was a limited Rapids non-coaching staff, non-people that aren't directly supporting the players. There was limited uh, uh, staff support in that regard. Um, sure. So Joe sends out those tweets. In the midst of that, he brings them up to um, a Hailstorm communication staffer who was aware of the comments, and there was no objection from that particular individual. From a Hailstorm perspective, I should be clear, either before or after the tweets were sent. With um, Joe and I walked this through on the phone. I can't remember what the number was, but with very few minutes remaining in extra time, the teams agreed to play 120 minutes, not 90. Um, a member of that member of the Rapids communication staff emailed us, myself and Joseph, on behalf of the front office, asking us to refrain from tweeting out the profanity heard during the match. That was the entirety of the comment. We'll we'll get to why that's important in a bit. Um, Joe stands by his reporting and I stand by his reporting and his our, our right to have talked about that. Um, and then between Saturday night and Sunday morning, Joe sent out three tweets that we have in the article as well that kind of describe his perspective of the situation that I think were at best mark incomplete, more likely misleading. And I could see where um, members of the club would look at that and say that that was deceitful, that those were lies potentially, um, and then maybe even um, insinuate that those were done with malicious intent to try and win the argument in the court of public opinion. Um, there was a lot that was made both by Joe and his comments in some conversations that have been had with the um, with members of the club and then particularly on Twitter about it being a public event and those being public comments. I think on the whole, we think that's um, that's not super relevant in this regard. Um, on paper, this was um, this was listed. The Hailstorm listed this game on their website in the press release with all their other preseason friendlies. They described this game as not open to spectators. There were bystanders at that game that, to our understanding, were entirely or mostly in the form of family and friends of immediate people with the hailstorm. Joe did mention that some people got up and left at the end of the 90 minutes. You would think that if if, if it was family and friends that were potentially going home with the player or the staffer, they would have stayed till the end of the game and either had known it was 120 minutes or known that the players weren't walking off the field and then therefore that was continuing. And he mentioned that and specifically used the word fan to describe the people that were leaving the bubble dome enclosed indoor facility around the pitch um, in Windsor and a member of the Hailstorm staff did not correct him upon that regardless of that or whatever technicalities are behind that or that being a significant thing i don't think it's significant joe was credentialed to cover this game as he had for a previous uh preseason friendly that um rapids 2 were involved in and we were credentialed to cover it he live tweeted the game against uh, DU that was held at the Rapids facility. Um, he wrote an article about that. We uh, Burgundy Way was given access to that game with the understanding that we could report on that to the public and the fact that the public wasn't there and potentially we were sharing something that was on paper behind closed doors and thus potentially um, not available to the Rapids community, I don't think is particularly relevant. Where I think we absolutely messed up is everything that happened after that email was sent. Um, as I go in detail, um, Joe messed up in terms of the tweets that he sent out 
what he said, how he said it, and then probably our understanding of how ultimately it was misconstrued. And by the time you got to Sunday afternoon, most of that, mo- most of the discourse that was happening about that on Twitter, um, on the Rapids discussion Facebook group, on the Rapids subreddit, was so far um, removed from the actual reality of the situation. Um, if Burgundy Wave was Sesame Street, Mark, and I am Elmo, then the word of the day for Sunday would have been hyperrealism. <laughs> and so I think we absolutely bear some responsibility in um we set in motion that happening. Um the Rapids gave us an egg, the egg they damaged the egg. I'll, I'll get to why I think that in a minute. The but then we cracked that open and left it there for the angry mob on Twitter that was coming off of a really disappointing loss for the Rapids, three games, no goals, one point and everything, looking for any excuse probably to take a shot at the team and at Colorado Rapids on Twitter and everything. And we gave them the we gave them the egg who then so that they could scramble it, they could burn it to a crisp, pitchforks <laughs> and torches in hand. Um and we bear responsibility for, I think, not realizing that. And then once things were getting out of hand, we did not contact the um, contact the club. In we, really, we should have contacted the club directly. To be honest, I, I mentioned this in the piece as well. They contact contacted us promptly and directly and privately. We should have reciprocated that. That was that was strike number one. Um, and I think there were probably about five strikes on our part, um, and maybe only one or two on their end, as far as we're concerned. Um, and so we messed up on that. End. And then at that point, things were going crazy. And there were a bunch of people that just immediately assumed that this was very similar to the athletic um, inner Miami situation that happened a couple weeks ago with Pablo Maurer and with Felipe Cardenas. I want to be clear, that was absolutely not the situation. Joe, I think, was understanding and having concerns that this would affect the outlet as a whole. This would affect Burgundy Way's reputation. This would affect access for myself and the aforementioned John Babiak as well. There's a lot of stuff that Joe's does that does not require access. It's not something that he's as passionate about or needy about that's me. There's a lot that I do that is reliant on that access. And I think what he put out, he and I at the time, both believed was clear that there were concerns about that access, but that none of that had actually taken place and that the and that ultimately we were trying to be proactive in preventing that. At no point has Burgundy Waves access to the club been restricted or in threat between Saturday and now. Um, I intend to be in the press box on Saturday. John intends to um, be sideline um, shooting photos and everything. Uh, again, Joe generally prefers, um, you know, his view from that he has from his season ticket. Um, and he hasn't been in the press box since well before COVID, I believe. Um, Joe, if you're listening to this and want to correct me, I'm happy to correct the record both in the article and in, um, and in a later podcast. So um, and he's not been there by choice. And I believe right now, Mark, that if Joe wanted to be in the press box credentialed for Burgundy Wave this weekend, that the club would accommodate that. Um had a conversation, reached out, albeit again after this egg was scrambled and burnt and um, trampled on and put in a dumpster fire. Um, reached out to the club, had a very productive, mutually empathetic and open conversation with multiple people at the club on Tuesday. And I feel we were heard and we were understood. And I, I feel I did a reasonable job in representing the outlet and myself in terms of where we owe accountability. Um, and I hope that. 
the conversation, what I'm saying now on the podcast and what you're hearing, um, Rapids community and what ultimately will be published on burgundywave.com before this podcast is published on our podcatchers are a reflection of that. I can understand where fans in a sicko, yeah, go get them, be even, you know, we want vindict, we want you to, we want, we want to be vindictive towards the club and we want that expressed through the media and everything. I can see where they have this perspective and I can see where the club has this perspective that, you know, they don't believe us that there was no ill intent or malicious, um, you know, implications for this, or we weren't doing that to try and score points and then win the argument in the court of public opinion, which ultimately matters. You know, the salacious and oversimplified and inaccurate headlines make the front page and then the redaction makes page six, you know, a week later or whatever. Um, so I can understand where that's where Joe and I are coming from. And we've spoke on the phone for, I think, a total of almost six hours at this point now between Saturday and now at time of recording. Um, and that's my understanding from his perspective. That's my understanding as well. And clearly the way that people reacted to that on Twitter, they did not understand it the way that we the way that some of the stuff we had put out as well. And I think that's on us. That's on us for firstly, not keeping that conversation private before saying anything public with the club. And that's on us for, I think, saying in a way that was not explicitly clear. And then we could have done more to dissuade that fake news as it was spreading and, um, and you know, manifesting and festering in a really unhealthy way and everything. And we own up to that. And so if people don't want to believe me right now and saying, Matt, you're being disingenuous, you totally did this. And now you're trying to own up to it because it's ended poorly for you from a reputation standpoint. I get that. There's nothing we can do to change that. Um, we're going to let our actions and our behavior both towards the club and our coverage and everything speak towards our behavior to rectify that from a mutual trust and from a reputation standpoint. Um, so what Joe said about um, about this event being public and you know the comments being public and the way he phrased what the club told him on Saturday – was misleading. I addressed that in the article in further detail. Um, we could have handled the situation better from the start. Our, that being said, our access is not at risk whatsoever. It was a big step forward, the meeting that I had and the communication I've had since with the club going back to Tuesday. And, you know, I, I feel like I, to a certain extent, Rabbi, I've <clears throat> I've cashed in on some of the social capital that I've built up since covering this team since 2016. I look forward to um, replenishing that stock and that bank, which fortunately is not crashed and had to be bailed out by the federal government um, this week as well. And all of that being said, Mark, from from the standpoint of the the one area where I still feel like unequivocally the the club was out of place, or I think again, if we could go back and we could do a bunch of things right, I think fundamentally the first action that should have been done differently was how the club handled reacting to Joe reporting on the game and reporting on players and coaching staff for Rapids two using profanity. Um, we Joe stood by his reporting on Saturday night. I stand by that reporting. We both stand by that reporting right now. Um, if anything, I'd say even more than standby, we're stuck in, Rabbi. Um, we were there with permission to cover the game, and we felt that we were within our right to talk about that. Um, and I feel like um, the club saying that the grounds for us not reporting on something, it being profanity, is somewhat hypocritical based on content that they've put out that includes, albeit censored, profanity, and the ways that they've reacted 
to other members of the media, including myself, including a tweet that I put out from a Rapids home win over LAFC, where Robin Frazier's opening sentence in the press conference after that included profanity as well. And so I think there's some level of hypocrisy in how they treated this moment versus the others. I don't see a difference in um, what Joe did and then the examples that I include towards the end of the piece as well. You can go look at those and see them for yourself as well. And I think it unfortunately, it, it sets an unhealthy precedent that could be problematic mark from the standpoint of us talking us covering the game and doing so in an incomplete or ultimately sanitized and censored way and in that incongruent with burgundy ways values with what with my values and with um and with joe's values as well and so for those reasons i stand by that reporting Tim Howard was suspended for foul language towards a fan in 2017. Uh, a rapid staffer was sent off in a home game for foul language towards an official last season as well. Um, the P word was said at DSG last home game. The N word still yeah. exists in the sport as well. And to, um, for, you know, if this were to be a blanket policy, and I don't know if that is the case yet. I, I want to be clear. I, I want to give the club an opportunity to look back at this moment, look at the implications of what they're doing, and then think about if this incident were to come up again, how they would particularly handling it. But for us to not be allowed to report on some of those instances on the grounds that it is profanity, um, I think um, I, I think would be detrimental to the coverage of the sport and what we want to try and do and everything. And so we're going to own the mistakes that we made and understanding the ramifications of what we put out and how that festers in an unhealthy way that we weren't a part of, but we were ultimately responsible for preventing. I would hope the club would understand that profanity said by, you know, in a Rapids 2 thread for a preseason game that I think at most was going to get 400 views on on Twitter question mark was not a hill worth defending and um you know if and that would set a precedent that ultimately I I think would be unhealthy um going forward and so in, in that regard you know again from from the principle of it Joe and I stand by his reporting um and m- my opinion hasn't changed regardless of everything that's happened all the stuff that happened on from full time at that point and all that happened on Sunday we own that and we're going to take that L and we're going to work to be better I hope this is a learning moment for the club in terms of handling media and everything um, I think the club media situation is in a much healthier standpoint this was not a athletic um, inner Miami situation this was not a Chris Bianchi in 2014 situation this was not an Gate situation just to be very very clear to everybody but we're going to work to be better i want to give the opportunity and give the benefit of the doubt mark that the club's going to do so in the same way that i think robin frazier and the first team are working to be better for minnesota on saturday nice um i think you are a wonderful guy matt and i think you uh have taken probably more responsibility than you need to but i really appreciate how no, much i'm i'm the you... managing editor of the buck stops with me mark this is first and foremost my responsibility well, and you, and you, right, and you want, you want, the, well, I think you, you want to be the bigger man here and you want to play, you want to make sure that it's a healthy relationship. I think one of the things that listeners don't fully understand, or they do understand, but it's not reflected in the Twitter and Reddit comments, is a good relationship between the media and the club is a healthy respect and a, and a mutual understanding of um, each other's role. And I think the understanding that uh, everyone's got a job to do, we all be professional about it, and we do a good job in doing that. I think the the challenge uh, historically that I think you've addressed very nicely in what you said and 
what you have spoken with the club about is that um, past communications departments of the Rapids have not been super great with the media. And, you know, one of the things I wrote extensively about at Backpass was the paradoxical relationship of communications teams um, that they are responsible for helping media to get really good stories out about their team so they can get free advertising for the Rapids and also protecting players from potentially damaging information or potentially bad PR that they would like to avoid. A great example of this um, is a tweet that if you didn't see from me, you might want to. Uh, Philip Goodrum, who is a striker for Memphis 901, was interviewed by local news a week and a half ago. And the local news reporter asked him what he was looking forward to coming back this year. And honestly, what he replied was, I had an opportunity to go abroad or to play for an MLS team and the club didn't let me and I'm devastated to be back here, right? And that is like, I mean, you can't have a comms director control that, but you'd want to if you could, right? If if you could uh if you could get make sure that that comment doesn't make it into the paper, you would. And so that's a little bit of what's going on here, which is the Rapids are worried that the swearing by coaches and by a player would reflect poorly on the team, but the flip side of that is um you know, we are responsible for reporting um and we report what we see. And um, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you my worst example, and it wasn't the Rapids, so that's why it's fair. Um, but it was an interesting one. Um, a number of years ago, I um, went to cover a Pitt men's game, and um, the game happened the day after the shooting in the pit, in Pittsburgh. I actually think it happened the day of the shooting, if I'm not mistaken. And just because it was a big Pittsburgh story, I asked the head coach of the Pitt men's team if he had any comments or thoughts about it. And he didn't really have anything interesting to say. And so I was walking back down the tunnel. The comms guy, who was basically a graduate student at Pitt, said, hey, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, are you going to use that quote that he said at the end about the da 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 And I said, no, I don't think so. Why do you ask? He said, well, because, you know, I might ask you politely to not use that if I could. And I kind of laughed and walked away because I wasn't because it wasn't a good quote. And it's not I'm not in the business of making head coaches look bad because they fumble an answer. If I were a malicious son of a gun, I could. But, you know, I'm not trying to take the worst, dumbest thing that a coach said and um, use it against the team because there's not a lot of news in that. But there's a gray area there, which, of course, like, you know, Dylan Serna saying something to a ref because he didn't like a call and using a four letter version is, you know, he's squarely within the realm of its news, right? It's squarely within the, maybe not news, but squarely within the realm of reportable. And the question of like, you know, what's the role of the communications department in trying to spin the narrative? You know, the, the line, the line was probably crossed by the rapids, which is to reach out and say, We'd really appreciate if you didn't say what you said or write what you wrote or heard or hear what you hear heard. And it's like, well, actually, you know, if I hear it, um, yeah, I probably am going to report it as long as it's not 
um, salacious gossip or utterly useless. So, but it's it's a it's a fine line, and you know I think what you said really well, Matt. There was that the mistakes weren't made in the reporting or the communications. It was that you know it would have been better if uh, if that had stayed in house and the disagreement about what was and wasn't news didn't kind of go out publicly and get fought over in the chat room. Yeah. So. And so, no, Joe and I absolutely bear responsibility in terms of that side of things and everything getting hijacked on, on Sunday, you know, when um, you post out tweets that are again, at best incomplete, probably misleading. One could argue were deceptive as well. Um, you know, and then those get hijacked as well. Then, you know, reputations get tarnished, you know, Mark, I don't I, we really like covering this team. We really like doing this podcast and everything. But, you know, if the Rapids were to go 2014 Bianchi and, you know, f- full on, you know, freeze Burgundy Wave out, freeze me out and then freeze you out by association, Rabbi, there's still a lot of content that we could put out. You know, the Rapids aren't coming for our podcast feed and our RSS feed or anything. It would be detrimental. But, yeah, we I, I could understand where from the club standpoint, their relationship and how they handle media stuff was tarnished. And and you have that coming on the back of the athletic inner Miami situation. You have that coming off of, you know, the same week that the Gary Lineker issue as well was happening with BBC and everything. I, I can completely understand where a bunch of people at Dick's Morning Goods Park on the third floor with a desk up there feel that we were careless and ultimately that led to a full day of just their reputation being tarnished with a bunch of people that only saw the one tweet, didn't have the full context, jumped to a conclusion we and then that got you know hijacked in a whole nother Twitter thread or on somewhere else on another website as well and we didn't step in to stop that and more importantly we, we put that red meat out again or you know we we cracked out that egg for them to then you know scramble burn and everything and then Gordon Ramsay showed up and yelled at the Rapids because they messed up when it was when that aspect of it wasn't their fault. Um, and again, I, I think we do a good job of, of owning that. And hopefully, um, you know, the, the the meeting that I had on Tuesday after training, I think, was a big step in the right direction. I think certainly the, the relationship is much better and was closer to moving on from there than we were on Sunday. Um I think with the communication I've had with the club since then, we're better at that point. Um, and hopefully by we get to Saturday, um, I think we're ready for this to be water under the bridge. And if, if I have to comport myself in a way that continues to rebuild that trust up that was, you know, that was deteriorated and damaged um, uh, over the weekend, that's something that I'm willing to do. Nice. All right. Well said, Matt. Let's move along. Listeners, uh, speaking of this past, this coming Saturday, March 18th, the day after St. Patrick's Day, the Colorado Rapids will be playing the Death Loons Minnesota United at 7.30 p.m. The Colorado Rapids, Mark, find themselves in 13th place, Mark. Uh, they have one point off of three games, uh, two losses, one draw, um, a goal difference of negative five, obviously, because they've given up five goals and they've scored no goals. And at No goals! And at GSG this season, they are 0-0-1, just the one win. Minnesota United have four points. Uh, they've played three games as well, two wins and a, uh, excuse me, one win, no losses, and one draw. They've played, they have four points, they've played two games. Uh, and they have a goal difference of plus one on the road this season. Mark, they are 1-0-0. They did play in a Snow Classical on the weekend at the Allianz. Folks, it was a um, uh, it was against New York Red Bulls, and that was a 1-1 draw. Mark, I look at Minnesota United, and obviously they're without Emmanuel Reynoso. We still haven't gotten a whole lot of clarity as to what that situation is. There's some rumors out there. Um, 
I'm not going to speculate on them given the segment that we just had as well, Mark. But, you know, I, I look at this team, you know, DeBossi in goal, uh, Dane St. Clair, I think is a very, very good goalkeeper for them as well. But we know what Robin Ludd is and he isn't. And when he's the best option you have as a central number 10, he is very much a downgrade over Emmanuel Reynoso. Um, Will Trapp's been in midfield as well. Uh, they've got Kamar Lawrence, who Mark, I think we both like, but is certainly getting up there age-wise for a fullback in MLS at the left-back position. And then normally the Robin to Reynoso's Batman is uh, Francisco Fragapane as well. Um so, Mark, normally this is different from how the Rapids certainly under Robin Frazier have prepared for and tried to shut down Minnesota United, where so much of it is about either cutting off service to Reynoso or once Reynoso's on the ball, making sure that he can't do anything for himself or for others as well. Um, you know, if you told me Jack Price was going to be 90 minutes, I would feel much better about the situation. But this is maybe a little bit different where there's not someone to kind of singularly focus on that maybe complicates how you complicates how you plan man marking and positioning and defense and that kind of structure. But again, Mark, if, if you told me I could play uh, MLS team that made the playoffs last year and they don't have their best player and he's a central attacking playmaker and everything, I feel much easier about that. I'm sure the three teams the Rapids have played this season are very grateful that Jack Price and Diego Rubio have not been a starter. Rabbi, what do you see in the Loons? What do the Rapids have to do other than finally put the ball in the net somehow, some way to win on Saturday? I'll answer that question, but first... A word from our sponsor. Holding the Highline is a reader-supported publication. We do this out of love, but website hosting and buying gas to go to training ain't free. If you value what we do, consider becoming a paid subscriber at just $42 a year or $5 a month. It's the price of a Frappuccino. You can afford it. A yearly subscription will get you some discounted or free merch from us this year, a beer mug or stein design pending and some behind-the-paywall articles. You'll be supporting citizen soccer journalism, and we appreciate it. So, Matt, to answer your question, um, what do I think about this team? Well, it's interesting. I, I don't really know a lot about the new players on this team. You did a great job of covering the known players. Um, I do know a little bit about Bongi Huangwen, who is um, – he? They, they added him last year. He is a South African. I think he's um, been a bit of a surprising, um, useful cog in the machine for them, and that's been really nice for them to have. Um, uh, although I don't think they – a lot of fans in Minnesota were excited about necessarily the, st the team effectively standing pat on the year. Um, they added uh, Miguel Tapias uh, at the – at the center back position. And he's been probably an upgrade over all the guys they had. I think the biggest question for me for Minnesota United is Kamar Lawrence at left back and Zarek Valentin at right back. Valentin, formerly of Portland. Um, not, you know, they're both older guys, 30 and 31 respectively. Um, Kamar Lawrence used to be absolutely the best left back in major league soccer, in my humble opinion, um, could do all the things. Um, but he's not quite as fast or as effective as he used to be. So the question is, are these guys going to be able to get it done? Um, I also think will trap over time has become something of a less rangy, less defensive guy at his position. So there are holes here. And then lastly, the, the, the one player that I think it's kind of like, is this guy good enough? I don't know. Uh, is Mender Garcia, who's been playing at striker for the last couple games. 
He has one goal in two matches. Um, he comes over from a team called Once Caldas uh, from Colombia. Um, he played uh, for the Colombian U23 team um, briefly, but uh, he's he's really like whether he's able to play at this level or whether he isn't um, kind of like the Colombian older version of Darren Yapi in the sense that He's a guy they plugged in who's probably not ready to be the primary striker for the team. That remains to be seen. Um, I think your point about Robin Lode is a very good one. Um, this is probably the Rapids' best shot at a win um, in the four outings they've had. Uh, this is, though, a team that is four points uh, in two games. Um, they had a win their opening week against Dallas and then a draw against uh, Red Bull New York. So they're a totally capable team who've actually been fairly decent so far this year and um, have looked good. Uh, so, you know, by comparison, the Rapids have not looked good and have not been particularly effective. Um, the only last thing going for them is the Rapids are at altitude and at home, and that is always a big advantage for them. And if the the weather cooperates and the team has uh, Jack Price back, uh, this could be the Rapids' first one of the year. You know, we'll see, I think, also how they come out and uh, whether they look uh, to, to kind of build on what they've already been doing and keep the, the, the formation and the tactics the same or whether there's some sort of wrinkle they can throw at it. The last question I'll ask from the Rapids' end, since I've said many words, is uh, whether Darren Yappy is ready to finally bang in a goal. I feel like he was right there. Um, in week two against Sporting Kansas City, he missed a couple of big opportunities early, early in the game. Um, he just needs to take a deep breath and settle in and, and hit that ball in, you know, and just be the guy because he, he, he's got it in him and, and it just feels like there's like a mental block there or, you know, it's just been like 5% or 3% off of where it needs to be. Yeah, to your point, Mark, like, again, the Rapids are creating chances, not in a high enough volume, but in a high yeah. enough quality. You know, there is an alternate universe here that is not too far off us in, like, the metaverse org chart where Darren Yappi has five goals, where he hits that chip ah. against Stefan Fry. He potentially gets a double, even potentially a hat trick. Not likely. Again, I'm just right. saying it's plausible against Sporting Kansas City. And then right. the, the piece, the play that you clipped mark in back pass as well where he nearly misses the the far post nice. as well another high quality opportunity so where the goals come from i think is an interesting question mark does yappy finally finish one of his really good chances from a final third standpoint i think unfortunately cole bassett's picked up where he left off from the Rapids in 2021, where he did a lot of really good link-up play. He worked really hard. You know, he has an engine. He covers a lot of ground in midfield and everything, but you get to the final third and that's missing, or, you know, he gets a high-quality chance and he doesn't finish. And so um, can post-Bassett return into goal Bassett, I think is an interesting question. Kevin Cabral, maybe his first start at altitude, a valid question as well. I'd almost think maybe the, the underrated, the one that I haven't brought up that maybe I should have started with is Jack Price coming on off the bench in San Jose. Is he potentially ready to start? And then do we finally have, you know, one of the most dangerous set piece takers in MLS? And I think if you have that, that's higher quality opportunities. Lawless hasn't gotten on one. Uh, Andreas Makshu has gotten a few chances as well. Do, do we finally see? We haven't had a, a Scottish salmon mark, I think, since 2021, middle of that season. Nice. I believe. So um, 
all of those are possibilities. I don't know what any one of those are likely. But if again, if we just keep adding up, Mark, enough chances that are like a 5 to a 10% chance, statistically eventually, limit as those chances and MLS goes to infinity, the Colorado Rapids will finally score a goal and potentially win a game <laughs> as well. Hooray. Um, Rabbi, one thing, two things that I want to bring up. Um, I'll, I'll start to your point on altitude. Uh, you may remember, listeners, that the Rapids traveled early in the week to San Jose in order to get acclimatized to grass that was in a good position as well. John Babiak over at Burgundy Wave had a really good piece on the new pitch that they put in and the complications of that going back to last season on the stadium pitch as well. I've had some reporting on the potentially the club looking at internally upgrading or changing some things to their facilities to where the pitches are able to better weather the winter and everything that is a, you know, um, a seven day a week activity through the off season as well to where that is maybe better applicated as well. And I think it's worth pointing out, Rabbi, it was I think it was a big deal that the Rapids finally had a preseason for the first time in a while at proper altitude in Caretro, but then they go to Orlando to get good weather and get some MLS competition, and they lose a bit of that. They go from Orlando to Seattle as well for that, and then they leave early for San Jose. Fake spring, Mark. Hopefully it lasts long enough. I know we're, we're expect we might get some snow on Thursday. Maybe it's already fallen if you're listening to us by then, folks. But, you know, Mark, maybe the weather's decent enough next week to where the Rapids can train next week in Denver as opposed to just like they did with San Jose going to Austin a little bit early and then losing some of that progress as well. Um, I do have some concerns. I'm curious to find out in like three to four weeks, um, you know, because normally, Mark, I feel like we think that it's it's about a month into the season, at which point the Rapids coming back from preseason, spending five to seven days, five to six days average per week um, in Denver, that about a month into the season is where they hit their stride to where it's no longer affecting them in a vacuum. And it's a fe- and it's a strength for them and then a weakness for their opponents. And I'm curious. I don't know that we can say that about the home opener. I'm curious. Is that still going to be an issue for this home game or are they going to be finally over that proverbial hump by um, by uh, next home game. Uh, Robin mentioned in a preseason sit-down we had with the media that the loss to Austin FC in the home opener in 2021, where they lost 3-1, he felt that altitude was an issue there, and the fact that they weren't able to do altitude training at um, uh, during preseason was potentially a factor in there. Um, last two things I'll say, Mark, uh, one of which is a prediction, but first, Rabbi, there is a former Colorado Rapid who will be making their first return to Dick Sporting its Park. Do you remember who it is? Uh, no. Backup goalkeeper Clint Irwin is with oh, Minnesota. Oh, yeah, that's right. With, uh, He's Minnesota, with Minnesota now. With Minnesota, Good deal. With Minnesota United, and so he will be backing up Dane St. Clair. Hopefully, he gets a nice round of applause from the crowd and everything. I, I know he left because he was maybe upset with uh, way things that happened at the club. Um, certainly him uh, getting Wally pipped by William Yarbrough, who might get pipped on Saturday by uh, Marco Illich. Um, so hopefully he has a nice time during uh, during warm-ups and the crowd's able to give him a clap. Um, uh, I, I would... I don't. Eh, I don't want to say that I'd prefer him in goal over Dane St. Clair, Mark. But um, you know, hopefully he'll be on the bench and doesn't have to tackle anybody um, to you know ensure that a VAR situation is happening, given what's happened in this fixture and before. Rabbi predictions. Um, every single time I say it, I I, I feel like I'm, I'm jinxing and everything. So I, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say a nil nil in this one, Rabbi. Uh, I'm gonna go two nil Rapids. We're we're getting our win. We're gonna score two goals. Feel. <sighs> 
Uh, Darren Yaffe gets off the duck and Sam Nicholson or Keegan Rosenberry with a distant banger. I really liked, by the way, um, Sam Nicholson coming in at right wing as an inverted right winger. I don't imagine we'll do that a lot, but I did. I did quite like it. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, those are those are my picks. Uh, Keegan Rosenberry, you know, he picks out like two or three screamers a year. Maybe this one comes early this year. All right. Sounds good, Mark. Uh, Rabbi, let's get out of here. I got a podcast to edit, and I have been informed that the first episode of season three of Ted Lasso has dropped, so I'm going to watch that before I go to bed. Listeners, you can follow us at Twitter, at LWS Matt Pollard, at Soccer underscore Rabbi. Read all of our soccer-related content, rapids or otherwise, at Pittsburgh Soccer Now, holdingtheheyline.subsec.com, burgundywave.com, and last word on sports.com backslash soccer. Um, head on over to our Substack if you want to support us financially. Five bucks a month or 42 bucks for the year. If you want to get in touch in long form, you can email us at rapids96podcast at gmail.com. If you want to get us at Twitter at rapids96podcast and send us your questions using the hashtag AskHTHL. Uh, listeners, uh, we'll see you next week. Matt, you're a pro. Peace. Peace.